this episode of Read Me a Story, we're starting the book Precious Time by Erica James. This is one of my favourite books and tells the story of Clara Costello, who gives up her well-paid secure job to spend a few months travelling in a camper van with her son Ned, travelling around the country just spending time together before he starts school. Her friends and family think she's mad, but she thinks it's an adventure for both of them and sets off. No particular plans, just the thought of arriving somewhere, parking up and being at home. Sounds great, doesn't it? So off we go on our adventure in her camper van that they've called Winnie. Chapter 1. Clara Costello's friends were all of one opinion, that she was mad. Away with the fairies, crazy, do lally, harpic, not the full shilling, and two bricks short of a load was just a random sample of what they had to say about her. And just for the record, harpic was her favourite. It was their cute way of saying she was clean round the bend. They had reached this diagnosis six weeks ago, at the end of January when she had announced she was giving up her job, her well-paid and secure job, as she was repeatedly pointed out to her, to take to the road in a second-hand camper van with her four-year-old son. Louise, her closest friend and biggest critic, had been disappointed that her gallivanting was to be restricted to the shores of Britain. Well, if you must indulge yourself with an early midlife crisis, you might at least have come up with something a little more adventurous, she had said. Backpacking around Southeast Asia in search of spiritual enlightenment would sound so much more interesting. That's because you and David are such dreadful snobs and want nothing but the most exotic postcards adorning your kitchen notice board, Clara had responded good-humouredly. And what about Ned? You've only just got him him into St Chad's. You'll lose his place. And even I know the waiting list for that score gets longer the older your child becomes. I don't care. He's only just turned four and he'll learn more doing this than he would stuck in a boring classroom every day. This will be fun for him, something he'll always remember. And anyway, school will be waiting for him in the autumn. If I don't do it now, I'll never do it. This chance will never come round again. The car in front braked sharply and Clara did likewise. The carrier bag of good luck cards and presents she'd been given during her farewell lunch slid forward on the passenger seat and dropped to the floor. She left them where they were, her attention caught by the sticker on the rear window of the rusting Fiat Panda in front of her. No fear, it read. Did that mean no fear, as in not likely? Or no fear? As in, hey, look at me, I'm a free-falling daredevil who's not scared of anyone or anything. Either way, Clara fancied a sticker like that. Her friends were always saying how fearless she was. You're too intrepid for your own good, David had said more than once. Not true, she'd argued. I always reason everything out before I dive in head first. But what neither her friends nor her parents knew was that they were all partly to blame for this rush of blood to the head 
as Louise had so charmingly referred to Clara's shift of perspective. It had started in the new year when Clara's parents had embarked on their trip of a lifetime to Australia, where they would be spending an open-ended amount of time with her brother Michael, his wife and their newborn baby. Kissing them goodbye at the airport, Clara had felt the sting of being left behind. It wasn't jealousy, more a case of acknowledging that it was too easy to stand still, too easy to let the glorious opportunities of life slip by without catching hold of them. For as long as she could remember, her parents had talked about travelling the world. But it was only now, since her father had retired, that they had felt they could justify such an extravagant trip, as if it was his reward for all the years he'd put in at the insurance company he worked for. But what if, after all that patient anticipation, one of them had fallen ill at the last minute, or, worse still and heaven forbid, died? What would have been the point in all that waiting? Why, oh why, did we spend so much time putting life on hold? Pondering this in the busy airport, she had suddenly realised Ned was crying. His tear-stained face was pressed against the smeared glass of the window as he tried in vain to see his grandparents for one last time. They had promised to wave to him from their plane on the tarmac. She bent down and held him tightly, wondering how she would ever fill the vast gap in his world created by Nana and Grandad's departure. The following evening, she'd gone for dinner at Louise and David's. It was their usual fivesome, David and Louise, Guy and Moira and herself. At around midnight, the time when Guy was most likely to start philosophising, once he'd progressed from wine to liqueurs, he had asked, if you only had a year left to live, what would you do? In your case, I'd donate the time to help the aged, David had laughed. You'd fit in nicely now you're losing your hair. And, knowing you, you'd waste your year. Helping herself to a grape, Louise had said, I'd stop dieting. I'd let myself become as fat as a pig and die happy. She sighed and with her teeth peeled a tiny length of skin off the grape. She was going through another of her weigh myself and hate myself phases. I'd buy the house I'd always wanted, Moira said. My dream home and to hell with the expense. So what's wrong with the one we've just bought, Guy frowned. I thought it was your dream house. Doesn't have a conservatory and the garden's too small. It's got five bedrooms and very nearly an acre of paddock. What more do you want? I just said I wanted a conservatory and... Well, I know what I'd do, David interrupted. I'd give up work and travel. No, you wouldn't, smiled Louise. You'd be bored to death within a week. You can't even go on a fortnight's holiday without reporting in. Besides, seeing too much of each other might send us over the edge. It was daft, drink-loaded, late into the night talk. No one giving a sensible answer. No one giving the question the thought it deserved. They were a group of 30-somethings with no children, apart from Clara, and no real responsibility to anyone other than themselves. But driving home later, Clara did give it some serious thought. And after she had paid the babysitter and watched her drive away, she'd gone upstairs to check on Ned. Kneeling by his bed, she had experienced the fierce tenderness of love that she always felt for him in moments like this. As she stroked his smooth, rounded cheek, she knew exactly what she would do if her days were numbered. She'd spent her time with Ned.
As a single mother and working long hours as a production manager for an international pharmaceutical company, she was all too aware of how little time she had with her son. It was hard to admit, but somewhere along the line she'd got her priorities wrong and had ended up squeezing Ned into her busy schedule when and when, when and how she could, giving him the tired, worn-out bits of herself rather than the best. How had she allowed herself to become the kind of person she would once have despised? The kind of person who, at the age of 34, couldn't stay awake, stay awake long enough to watch the 10 o'clock news through to the weather, who perpetually worked late because there was yet another problem on the packing line. The kind of person who justified it all by saying there was a mortgage to pay, nursery school fees to find and a voracious pension fund to feed. The reality was that, like her friends, she had confused success with happiness and having built their happiness on the shifting sands of material success, she was feeling the strain of sustaining it. Financial security was a severe taskmaster, and she knew that only a monumental change of heart would alter her outlook. It had happened to her when she least expected it. With her parents away, taking care of Ned had become even more of a juggling act. They had looked after Ned for her most days. They were wonderful with him, and adored him, and they were as much a part of his life as she was. They would pick him up from nursery drive him to the park where he could play on the swings and ride his bike, then take him home to give him his tea and generally spoil him. But since they'd gone to Sydney to make the acquaintance of their new grandson, Clara had had to persuade Ned that he had to go to a new nursery school where he could stay in the after-school activity club until she came to collect him. On his first morning, his dark eyes had pleaded with her not to leave him, his tiny hand squeezing hers, sending her silent messages that this wasn't what he wanted. It wasn't what she wanted either, but she didn't have any choice. She helped him wriggle out of his stiff new blazer and hung it with his satchel and plimsoll bag on his hook, which was level with her waist. She stooped to kiss him goodbye and saw to her horror that beneath his shiny fringe his eyes were filling. It'll be okay, Ned, she said, her throat so clenched that she could hardly get the words out. You'll have so much fun that the day will whiz by, and before you know where you are, I'll be here to take you home. He swallowed. I want to go home. I want Nana and Grandad. Oh, Ned, she whispered. I wish they were here too. Then, all businesslike, she tilted up his chin and straightened the knot of his red and grey tie, although it was already perfectly straight. Two bigger boys cruised over and gave Ned a contemptuous once-over. One said... What's that in your hand? He smiled his best engaging smile, the one that his grandmother said was a gift from the angels, and proudly showed them what he was holding. It was a small plastic mermaid that had belonged to Clara when she was little, and it had gone everywhere with her. Now it went everywhere with Ned. It was his talisman, and he was never without it. It's old, he said brightly, nearly as old as my mummy. The boys drew in for a closer, better look. It's a doll, one sneered. Dolls are for girls. Sniggering, they sauntered away. Shall I look after Mermy today for you? Clara asked, wanting to scoop Ned up and get him out of this place and away from bigger boy superiority. He shook his head and pushed Mermy back into his pocket, 
With her heart fit to break, she watched him square his shoulders, ready to brave the day ahead. That day, she had worried about Ned constantly. She didn't care a jot about the production of the latest infertility drug, nor about the rumours that once again Phoenix Pharmaceuticals USA were thinking of selling their UK division in Epsom, Surrey, to a French company. From their offices on the floor above her, Guy and David had emailed her with what was allegedly going on. Both suggested that she brush up on her French. Zout alors avec les Français, nous will be out of le pan and dans le feu. Guy had messaged, which had probably stretched his linguistic repertoire to its limit. She left as early as she could and drove like the wind, dreading to find Ned in a crumpled heap of misery. What she found was a tired-looking little boy, sitting cross-legged on the floor with a group of glassy-eyed children watching a cartoon on a large-screen television. She was approached by one of his teachers who said she wanted a little word. He's been all right, hasn't he? Oh, he's an absolute delight, the woman said. He's fitted in just fine, but, and I know it's only his first day with us, goodness, what a disorganised little boy he is. A head full of clutter, and he never stops talking. But don't worry, I'm sure that between us we'll soon have him licked into shape. There was laughter in her voice, and Clara could see that she wasn't speaking unkindly. Even so, she could have slapped her face. For heaven's sake, he was four years old. What did she expect? A personal organiser tucked into his briefcase? Looking around her and seeing the orderly rows of blazers, satchels and plimsoll bags hanging from their hooks, Clara felt angry. This was the future for Ned. At the age of four, he was already on a conveyor belt of uniformity. His next stop would be an office where he could hang his jacket and the rest of his life. It was while she was driving home, with Ned almost asleep, his head tipped to one side, his hands wrapped around Mermy, that Clara made her decision. It was now or never. She had until September to give Ned what he deserved. She would use the precious time available and give him her undivided attention and hopefully a little adventure into the bargain. Chapter 2 More than 250 miles away in Deaconsbridge, a small market town in the Peak District, where luscious hills of tranquil beauty gave way to peaty moors of savage wildness, a man sat brooding restlessly on an uncomfortable orange plastic chair. His name was Gabriel Liberty, and at the age of 79, he believed he had earned the right not to be kept waiting. Half an hour he'd been stuck here, confined in this airtight room, exposed to any number of germs. He stretched out his stiff legs and knocked over a towel of building bricks, which an ugly, snivelling brat had just spent the last five minutes constructing. Watch it, can't you? the child's mother said. She put down her magazine, shuffled her handbag and a small baby on her lap and bent to the brat who was now producing an annoyingly loud wail. Serves him right for being in my way, Gabriel said. And while you're down there, wipe his nose, it's disgusting. A shrill ring sounded, followed by an even shriller voice announcing that the doctor was ready for patient number 16. Gabriel hauled himself out of his chair. And about time too, he muttered. I think you'll find I'm number 16, said a hesitant voice from across the room. 
Gabriel glared at a pasty-faced man in a flat cap, daring him to mount any kind of a real challenge. Oh, let him go, said the mother of two. Give us all some peace. Without bothering to knock, Gabriel entered Dr Cunningham's surgery. Hmm, not seen you before, he said, sitting down in front of the fake teak desk with a computer on one end and a shiny brass statue of a dancing woman with too many hands at the other. Sandwiched between the two was a spry little Indian man in his shirt sleeves. His name was Dr Singh, if the engraved plaque in front of him was to be believed. What happened to Dr Cunningham? asked Gabriel. He died. Mm, That doesn't surprise me. He never did strike me as a good advertisement for his profession. Always looked overworked and underfed. Clearly wasn't practising what he preached. What got him then? Every doctor's weakness? The booze and fags? No, a car crash in Portugal while he was on holiday with his family. Did you not read about it in the local paper? I've no time for local rags. Nothing but a load of old cods about jumble sales and potting shed break-ins. The Portuguese are the worst drivers on earth, aren't they? Mind you, your lot aren't much better. I was in Delhi once. Never seen anything like it. Just passing through, are you? Dr Singh gave him a thin smile. No, I'm here for the duration. How about you? All depends. On anything in particular? Yes, on how soon I can get out of here. I'll either die of boredom being cooped up in this surgery a moment longer, or I'll catch something fatal. Well, let's see if I can oblige you and send you on your speedy way. Dr Singh turned and stared into the computer screen. I see it's some months since you last paid us a visit, Mr Shawcross. How's that lazy bowel of yours? Gabriel bristled at the man's effrontery. I'll have you know my bowel is in perfect working order. Nothing remotely lazy about it. And the name's Liberty. Gabriel Liberty. You could at least get that right. Dr Singh frowned and tapped away at his keyboard. I thought Mr Shawcross was next on my list. Oh him, he wasn't fast enough. Probably that lazy bowel of his holding him back. Gabriel snorted at his own joke, but Mr Singh attacked his keyboard once more. Ah, here we are. Gabriel Liberty of Mermaid House, Hollow Edge Moor, Deaconsbridge. Is that you? Have I got that right? It'll do right enough. Another glance at the screen gave Dr Singh his next question. So how are you getting on with your diet? Still keeping an eye on your cholesterol? A weather eye at all times, Gabriel answered. He almost licked his lips at the thought of the steak and kidney pudding with ships that he was about to be tucking into as soon as he got out of here. Another glance at the screen. And your arthritis? Gabriel waved his distorted, large-knuckled hands. I'm giving them a rest. Decided to ease up on the fiddly work of brain surgery. Truth is, can't find the brains. Not round here, anyway. Dr Singh rested his elbows on the desk. So what can I help you with? I was wondering when you'd get to the point. It's this. Lunch wasn't proving as enjoyable as Gabriel had hoped it would be. For a start, his usual table was occupied by a couple of day-trippers, and then there'd been no steak and kidney pudding on the menu. He'd had to make do with egg and sausage instead. He didn't like change, and he didn't like having to make do. Besides, egg and sausage he could do at home. Nothing to it, but steak and kidney pudding was another matter. He was sitting in the Mermaid Cafe overlooking the square, where Friday's market was in full flow. 
local people were going about their business while tourists brought out by the warm spring weather were getting in their way. He sprinkled extra salt onto his chips, folded the newspaper that the cafe supplied and prepared himself for a, for a satisfying assault on the crossword. To his annoyance, someone had beaten him to it. He pushed it aside. The day was not going well. As pathetic as it was, coming into Deaconsbridge had become the high spot of his week. It was the only day that had any structure to it. He came here every Friday to browse in the antiquarian bookshop, to pick up the odd item of food, kippers for his supper that evening, and to go to the bank and the post office. And of course, to have his lunch cooked for him. He munched a mouthful of sausage slowly and wondered at the tedium of his life. It wasn't an easy confession for him to make, but he was bored. Other than his younger son Jonah, who did the bulk of his shopping for him, he rarely saw anyone during the week, and Jonah only ever made a fleeting visit. As for Casper and Damson, well, if it hadn't been for Val's funeral, he might not have seen them at all these last couple of years. It was strange, but since the death of his second wife 18 months ago, he'd thought more and more of Anastasia, his first wife. The memory of her had grown sharper as Val's had faded. Anastasia had been the mother of his children and had died 34 years ago. He'd been away on business in Nigeria when it happened and had missed her death by 12 hours. In those days, communication wasn't what it is today and he had arrived home to be told that he was the widowed father of three children. Anastasia had died giving birth to Jonah. Help was brought in to take care of the children, but nothing was ever the same again. As the years passed, it was clear that the children, in particular the twins, Casper and Damson, who were growing wilder by the day, needed a mother. So he married Val. It was a union of convenience on both sides. He had needed someone to organise the house and his family so that he could devote himself to the running of Liberty Engineering. And Val had wanted the security a husband could offer. They never deluded themselves that the arrangement was perfect, but he liked to think that it had worked well for the most part. His plate had been cleared away some time ago and he was ready for his dessert now. He banged his spoon sharply on the table and caught the eye of a waitress. Fellow diners looked his way and he returned to their stares disdainfully. Someone muttered how rude he was, but the waitress came over with his bowl of apple pie and custard, just as she always did when he summoned her with his spoon. Everything all right, she said. She asked this every time she served him. He supposed it was her equivalent of have a nice day and went with a ridiculous outfit that she and the other waitresses wore. Silly red baseball caps with short red ovals, which made them look as though they belonged in a theme park. No, he said, everything is far from all right. I'm at the wrong table, there was no steak and kidney on the menu, and what's more, he thrust the paper at her, someone has completed my crossword. We'll have to see if we can do better next Friday, she said breezily. Tea or coffee? You know I always have tea. He spent the rest of the afternoon doing his errands before awarding himself an hour of browsing in the bookshop. Eventually, he drove back to Mermaid House in a foul mood. He had had to abort his first attempt because he had forgotten to call in at the chemist's. With Dr Singh's words echoing in his ears, he had turned the Land Rover round and gone back into town. 
The man was probably overreacting, but he had said it was imperative that he started the course of antibiotics as soon as possible. He had also said that Gabriel would have to come into the surgery again in a couple of days to have the dressing changed. A lot of fuss and bother about nothing. Even so, it wouldn't hurt to take the quack at his word, seeing as the pain in his arm had been getting worse. It had been so bad the last two nights that he hadn't been able to sleep. That's a very nasty burn, Mr Liberty, the doctor had said when Gabriel had rolled up his sleeve. It's also infected. When and how did you do it? Sometime last week, I I was careless with the kettle. And you didn't think to get it seen to? Thought it would heal on its own. Do you live alone, Miss Liberty? What's that got to do with the price of eggs? Once again, the doctor's eyes had scanned his computer screen. Your wife died not so long ago, didn't she? She might have. What else have you got stored on there about me? You'd be surprised. Now, push your sleeve right back as far as it will go and let me have a good gander. You know, for a foreigner, your English isn't bad. And for a man with a burn the size of a chapati, you're lucky you're not in hospital. Any family to keep an eye on you? Mind your own business. The approach to Mermaid House was almost a mile long, and the bumpy track made for hard going. It was a toss-up whose suspension would give out first, the ancient Land Rovers or Gabriel's. Cursing as each bump jolted his arm, he knew he would rather die than be forced to move. What was a little discomfort when he had perfection on his doorstep? Perched high on hollow edge moor and about a thousand feet above sea level, his home was surrounded by unrivalled scenery. The best in England for his money. From the front of the house and beyond the expanse of moorland, Deaconsbridge nestled in the shallow plateau of the valley with its old mill and factory chimneys just visible. But turn to the right, to the south, and you have the swell of the dales on the white peak. Walk round to the side of the house, and on a clear day, the windswept hulk of Kinder Scout dominated the skyline. When he let himself in, Gabriel saw that Jonah had been and gone. There were three carrier bags of shopping on the table, with a note saying that he'd put away the perishable items in the fridge and freezer. Damn the boy! It had become Jonah's habit to call when he knew his father was out. Chapter 3 The nature of Archie Merriman's work meant that he saw more than his fair share of bereavement. A house clearance job usually meant that he was tidying up the loose ends of someone's life and death and it never failed to touch him. Stripping a property of its furniture and possessions, hearing the echoing footsteps on floors where once there'd been carpets, always made him feel that he had personally removed the heart from the house. No longer was it a home, it was an empty shell. It was only the thought of the next family moving in that kept him from becoming maudlin. He liked to visualise them taking up residence, children crashing down the stairs, doors banging, chairs scraping, cutlery rattling, the radio playing... He was glad that after 25 years in the business, he hadn't become hardened to it, and not just because it gave him a good reputation and the edge on the other second-hand dealers in the area, but because it proved to him that he was still the same old Archie. You always were a soft beggar, his mother used to say to him. Soft as cotton grass, that's what you are. He climbed into his van, smiled goodbye to the two women whose father's house he had just cleared. 
What wouldn't he give to hear a sentence of as coherent as that from his mother these days? He reversed the van slowly, mindful of the load in the back. None of it was particularly valuable. The best stuff had been taken away for auction. But to mistreat it seemed disrespectful to those who had once owned it. Some of it would end up at the tip. Even he couldn't sell perished bath mats and crumbling cork tiles. But he would shift most of it. It had been a long job and had taken him longer than he had expected. He preferred smaller houses, not because he was lazy, but because he didn't like to get too involved. If you spent too long clearing a house, you ended up thinking like the family, unable to be objective. He had done it yesterday. Are you sure you wouldn't like to hang on to this? He had asked the two sisters. From the expression in their eyes, he had known he'd said the wrong thing. They had probably already put themselves through countless emotional hoops deciding what to keep and what to part with, and here was this outsider making it worse for them. He trundled the van slowly down the hill, away from the stone-built farmhouse and its for-sale board. In his rear-view mirror, he could see the two women still standing where he'd left them. They were crying. It didn't surprise him. He'd seen it all before. While there had been business to conduct, they had held themselves together, but now that they were alone, they could go back to mourning the death of their father. It was warm in the van and he lowered the window. Immediately he felt his spirits drag themselves up from his boots. At last it felt like spring was really here. But he loved March. In lush green fields crisscrossed with a network of dry stone walls, sheep grazed while skinny newborn lambs hopped and skipped on bandy legs. In the distance he could make out a kestrel, hovering above something on the ground that had caught its eye. He sighed expansively. Despite all the sadness, the world wasn't a bad place, and until someone came up with anything better, he'd stick with it a while longer. He drove on and wondered what he would find at home that evening. Since his mother had moved in with him after her stroke, things between him and Stella had gone from bad to worse. Over my dead body had been her exact words when he'd suggested it, and he hadn't been surprised by her hostility. Stella and his mum had never hit it off, but he had hoped she would come round to the idea. Thankfully she had, and Bessie had moved in last month. When Archie had invited his mother to come and stay with them, as he had euphemistically put it to her, she had agreed quite readily. To his relief, he knew how independent she was, We'll treat it as a holiday, he'd said, but without the sunburn. He suspected that she knew she would never go back to her house in Derby. Meanwhile, her neighbours were keeping an eye on it so that she could return when she was able. The fact that a second stroke was likely to follow the first and that it would probably be more debilitating was not mentioned. She'd had the stroke just before Christmas. Not a massive one, but bad enough to knock the stuffing out of her. The tough, uncompromising woman he had always known became fragile and unsure. The stroke had robbed her of nearly all the strength in her right arm and hand, and her right leg had also taken a beating, which made walking slow and difficult. Making herself understood had been a problem too. Her speech was a lot clearer now, and that was down to weeks of diligent speech therapy. Although at times it was still a puzzle to know what she was saying. If she was tired or anxious, the words came out slurred or just plain drumbled. Humdryer for tumbledryer. Rare hush for hairbrush. 
He tried to turn understanding her into a game, calming her frustration with light-hearted humour. But Stella didn't have the patience for this and recently had shown signs of losing her temper. He didn't blame her. Bessie wasn't her mother after all. The strain of being caught between a rock and a hard place, wanting to keep the peace with his wife and do the right thing by his mother, was taking its toll. Initially, things had gone smoothly, but then the niggles had turned into rows, and recently he and Stella had both said things that they should never have voiced. Until then, their skirmishes had been conducted in low voices. She's my mother, he had whispered one night in the kitchen, as Stella slammed cupboards and drawers. She's not well. What do you expect me to do with her? It was a dangerous question, given that he knew exactly what Stella wanted him to do with her. But he would never do that. He saw too often the hurt and sense of betrayal as families, as well-meaning as they were, shepherded their elderly relatives out of the houses they knew and loved and into nursing homes. Sometimes they went willingly, looked forward to giving up the reins of running a house in exchange for having everything done for them. But more often than not, they were sad and confused, not quite understanding that they would never see their home again. No, he wouldn't do that to Bessie Merriman. What saddened him most was that his mother apologised frequently for having become a burden, and there was nothing he could do to convince her that she wasn't. The woman who had brought him up single-handedly and taught him always to see the best in others would never be a burden to him. His shop, Second Best, was situated on the corner of Millstone Row and Lower Hay in Deaconsbridge. It was a double-fronted Victorian building of stone that originally had been honey gold, but which was now blackened with age. Positioned just off the market square, it had the bonus of convenient parking to the side, where, with Samson's help, Archie unloaded the van. Samson, his real name was Shane, was the extra brawn Archie relied on for those larger items of furniture he couldn't manage on his own. At six feet two, Archie wasn't a small man, but Samson dwarfed him. His conversational skills were restricted to a nod and a grunt, but he was a godsend with a wardrobe on his back and a horsehair mattress between his teeth. On the occasions when Samson was on a house clearance job with Archie, or they were delivering furniture to a customer, Comrade Norm, so-called because his parents had christened him Norman Lennon Jones, kept a part-time eye on the shop. There were days when they could have done with another pair of hands, but business wasn't consistently good. It could stretch to two and a half salaries, but any more and the financial knicker elastic would snap. He said goodnight to Samson, checked that all was locked and secure and set off for home, a ten minute walk across the town. The low evening sun brought a soft glow of light to the square and now that everything was shut, apart from the Mermaid Cafe, which stayed open until seven o'clock, a pleasing calm had descended. The market traders had gone, leaving behind a vacant cobbled square, splattered with squashed fruit and veg and discarded hot dog wrappers. Over by the war memorial, a blue and white carrier bag was swept along by the breeze until it came to rest at the foot of a litter bin. It was only a few yards out of his way, so Archie strolled over and popped it in. Straightening up, he waved to Joe Shelmerdine, who was just locking his bookshop. Further along the street was the Deaconsbridge Arms, and although it had been done up by the brewery to draw in tourists, 
it was still where the old die-hard drinkers gathered to sup their beer and indulge in local gossip. Archie rarely showed his face in there. He wasn't a drinker. He'd seen alcohol turn his father into a vicious bully and had grown up with a horror of it doing the same to him. He'd come home too many times from school to find his father drunk and ready to take out his anger on the first person to hand. From a young age, Archie had known that it was better for him to take the beating than his mother. He carried on briskly. It was the nearest he got to working out like Samson did, but slowed when he got to Cross Street. It was one of the steepest roads in the town and it always took him by surprise. Squeezed the air out of his chest and turned his relatively healthy 55-year-old body into that of a wheezing 90-year-old. He paused to catch his breath, leaning against the painted handrail on which generations of small children had swung upside down like rows of multicoloured fruit bats. He and Stella had wanted children, but sadly it wasn't to be, and as the years passed they had resigned themselves to being one of those childless couples who never quite fit in. They'd moved to Deaconsbridge not long after they had married, and had lived in a rented flat until they had enough money to put down on a deposit on a three-storey end-of-terrace house in Cross Street. They had been here ever since. They could have moved, and Stella had been keener than him to do so, but somehow they'd never got round to it. When he reached home, he let himself in at the back door, and was surprised by how quiet it was. Usually the radio or the television was on, sometimes both competing to be heard. A sixth sense told him something was wrong. The same sixth sense that had dried his mouth and made his hair stand on end just before Christmas when he had found his mother's home dark and silent. She had been lying on the floor by the side of her bed, her face twisted, her nightdress exposing more of her than was fair. When she saw him, her eyes had filled with tears. She'd been there since morning, unable to move, unable to call for help. He moved fast now, calling her name as he took the stairs two at a time. He burst into what had been the spare room, but which was now her room. She wasn't there. Into the bathroom next? Nothing. He was just about to go into his and Stella's room when he heard her voice. He bent over the balustrade and saw his mother looking up at him from the bottom of the stairs. Slate, she said, pointing to her watch. He put his heart back where it belonged and joined her in the hall. Only a little late tonight, he said, adrenaline still pumping through him. I had a busy day. Where were you? Didn't you hear me calling? She took his arm for support and led him slowly towards the front room. Once again, the hairs on the back of his neck warned him of an impending shock. On the mantelpiece, between a pair of decorative china plates, was an envelope with his name on it. He knew without opening it what it would say. Stella had left him. Chapter 4 It was Sunday morning and Ned and Clara were being treated to a brunch party send-off. While Moira helped Ned to the last of the chipolatas and crispy bacon... Clara watched the goings-on outside, where Guy and David were putting the finishing touches to Winnie, the three-year-old camper van that was soon to be Ned and Clara's new home. Parting with her lovely Mazda MX-5 yesterday morning had been a wrench for Clara, 
and even Ned had looked sad when they had watched the smart two-seater sports car being driven away by its new owner. It had always been a source of pride to Ned that he was the only child he knew who got to sit in the front of his mother's car. He had brightened, though, when the camper van arrived. It was second-hand, but in excellent condition, and unlike a brand-new car, it seemed to have a highly developed personality. There was a cosy feel to it that suggested happy times ahead. When Clara had first seen it, the salesman had explained that its previous owners were a nice couple who had only parted with it because they were upgrading to something bigger. I had no idea camper vans could be so well kitted out, she had said as they stepped inside and she felt the soft fitted carpet beneath her shoes. This is actually what we call a motorhome and quite a modest one at that. You should see what we have at the top end of the market. The Winnebago, now that's what we call deluxe. He pointed through one of the side windows to a massive bus-like vehicle that looked as if it might accommodate at least two touring rock bands. Heavens, how many does that sleep? she asked. Eight. One of the beds is queen size. There's even a washing machine and tumble dryer on board. Then, feeling disloyal to the modest camper van they were supposed to be viewing, she said, Well, how about you show me what this baby has to offer? While Ned carried out his own inspection, opening doors, trying the driver's seat to complete with armrests, the salesman had filled her in on the superior coach-built workmanship, the elegant interior, the spacious dinette, the two-burner combination cooker, the tilt-tolerant fridge and the swivel cab seats. Ned had already discovered those. One minute he was facing the front, the next the back. With growing enthusiasm, the young man showed her rattle-free lockers and cabinets. There were recessed halogen reading lights, upholstered bench seats, two surprisingly large wardrobes, a drop-down contoured hand basin in the ingenious bathroom that contained a flushable toilet as well as a shower. He left the sleeping arrangements till last, showing her with a magician's flourish the double bed over the cab, complete with little larder and two single beds in the dinette area that could also convert to a comfortable double. The previous owners have a name for it, she asked when at last he drew breath. He gave her an odd look. Not that I know of. I could check the registration document if you want. It's in the office. No, that's okay. She sensed he was humouring her, probably thinking that after everything he'd just gone through, she was another time waster. May I have a test drive, please, she said, keen to reinflate him. I'd like to see how it handles. He was immediately back into his stride. Certainly. Have you driven one before? It will feel quite different from what you've been used to. He cast an eye in the direction of her sports car. I'm sure I'll get the hang of it. Is it ours now? asked Ned, climbing down the ladder from the bed above the cab while the salesman went to fetch the keys. Would you like it to be? He slipped into the driver's seat, grabbed the steering wheel and brummed noisily, trying to reach the pedals. I'll take that as a yes, she smiled. It was while they were driving home, after she had written a cheque for the deposit, that the camper van had been christened. Clara had been thinking of the ridiculous eight-birth monstrosity and had said scornfully to no one in particular, Winnie Bago, what kind of a name is that? Winnie, Winnie, Winnie Bago, chanted Ned. Is that what we're calling our camper van? 
he asked, looking up from the pile of glossy brochures he'd gathered from the salesman's office. We could shorten it to Winnie, she said. What do you think? He considered her suggestion earnestly, then smiled. Poo, he said. Oh dear, can you hang on till we get home? A grin extended across his face. Not that. Winnie the poo. Apart from filling Winnie with provisions, clothes, books, toys, games, cassettes, a basic toolkit and anything else they might need for the next five months, they had also had to pack up other possessions. During their absence, a young professional couple would be renting their house and were moving in on Monday. Initially, Clara hadn't wanted to let it, but common sense had dictated that she might as well have the money coming in to pay off the mortgage. Then her savings wouldn't receive such a large dent. It also meant that she would be committed to what she had started, with no house to come back to until the end of August. She would have to make a go of the trip. Her friends had been concerned about money. I just don't understand how you'll manage, Moira said. I've got a pep that's just dying to be let loose, she had said. I know that would only get you through a long weekend, Moira, but our needs will be quite modest while we're away. And if the worst comes to the worst, we could resort to busking. I wouldn't put it past you. Oh, and since when did I become such a rebel? You've always been a rebel, Clara Bell, Guy had said. You've never been fully in step with the rest of us. Though Clara knew that there was an element of truth in what he had said, she was hurt to hear it voiced so openly. She and Ned had not yet travelled a mile, but already a gap was opening between her and the gang. You mean I'm different from you lot because I'm not married and I don't trade in my house every other year for something bigger and better? Now don't get nasty with Guy, Moira had said. It's not his fault he still hasn't forgiven you for spilling the beans about Margaret Thatcher not being the tooth fairy. Suddenly everyone had an opinion about her. David said, you know jolly well that you're the resourceful one of us. For goodness sake, you're the only one sitting round this table who knows what to do with a power drill. When was the last time you had to have a little man in, eh? Nothing ever phases you, Clara, Louise put in. While we've become childishly self-indulgent as we've grown older, you've turned into a sensible adult. That sounds worryingly like a criticism to me, Clara said defensively. They ignored her and carried on, warming to their theme. You're a natural facilitator, Guy said, a doer who has to do things her way. Are you saying I'm bossy? Well, you do like to be in charge, don't you? Not always. Face it, Clara, David said. You put us all to shame. Just look at what you achieved single-handedly. You've carved out a great career for yourself. You have a great career. I'm willfully throwing away, she chipped in, wanting to redress the balance of this cringe-making conversation. He had waved her interruption aside. And you have a fantastic son who even you would admit is your crowning glory. Enough, she'd cried. Clara was still watching the antics of her friends outside when Louise came in and joined her at the window. Just look at them. Anyone would think you were getting married. Decorated with party streamers and shaving foam, Winnie indeed looked like the archetypal honeymoon getaway vehicle. You know, it's not too late to change your mind about this hair-brained caper, Louise said. Without turning her head, Clara said, And why would I want to do that? 
Oh, you know, now that it's the day you're finally setting off, it might be dawning on you, the extent of your madness and the terrible mistake you're making. Only you're too proud to admit that you might have been a little hasty. Now Clara did turn and look at her friend. Are you too proud to admit that you're envious of what I'm doing? Me? Jealous of being cooped up in a box on wheels for five months with a chemical loo? You must be joking. Come on, Louise, admit it. Aren't you just a teensy-weensy bit envious that I'm escaping, taking time out so that I can enjoy each day as it comes? No, I'm not. I'm more concerned with living in the real world, not this froth concoction you've invented for yourself. Feels real enough to me. Hmm. Let's see how it feels in a week's time when you're bored of your own company and Ned says he's homesick. Clara looked across Louise and David's sitting room to where Ned was on the sofa with Moira. A momentary pang of uncertainty made her wonder if she wasn't being entirely honest with herself. Who did she think would benefit most from this trip? Herself or Ned? Both of them, she told herself firmly. She needed a break from work and to be with Ned. Boredom and homesickness won't be an issue, she said. What we'll experience will be just as real and valid as anything that's going on round here. But it will only be as real as a holiday, which, when it comes to an end, will bring you back to where you started. Maybe it won't. Maybe I'll find my personal utopia out on the road and never come home. And you can take this as a first official warning. If you stop washing your hair, pierce yourself just once and turn into a new age hippie, I'll publicly disown you. Clara smiled. Is that a promise? Oh, come here and give me a hug. I'm going to miss you. You will write, won't you? I'll need the occasional phone call too to keep me going. Clara hugged her back. I'll miss you too and of course I'll keep in touch. You don't think I'd pass up the opportunity to brag about what a wonderful time I'm having, do you? Rubbing your snooty nose in my happiness will give me the greatest pleasure. They drew apart. And don't you dare quote me, Louise said. But yes, part of me is jealous of what you're doing. Who wouldn't be? Clara embraced her again. And that happy thought will be with me every time I clean out the Kemi loo. A bang on the window made them both jump. Guy and David's open-mouthed faces were pressed against the glass. It wasn't a pretty sight. And there's another happy memory for you to take with you, laughed Louise. A matching pair of gargoyles. At last they were ready to go. Come on, you intrepid explorers, David said, lifting Ned down from his shoulders. That's enough of the goodbyes. It's time you're on your way. Glad to know you're eager for us to be gone, said Clara. She settled Ned into the front passenger seat. That's because the sooner you go, the sooner you'll be back, sweetie pie. I wouldn't count on it. You're all talk, Clarabelle. A hundred quid says you'll be crawling back to us within the month and applying for your old job. She held out her hand to Guy. Two hundred says I won't. He grasped it firmly. Done. Clara hugged everyone all over again and received their unhelpful words of advice with good grace. No, she wouldn't talk to strangers. No, she wouldn't hold the traffic up too much. And yes, she would remember to respect the countryside. Louise moved in to have the last word. And don't do anything stupid while you're away. Such as? Such as taking any unnecessary risks. We want you to come back in one piece, okay? This may come as a shock to you, Louise, but that's something I'm keen to do myself. An hour into the journey, and with Walton on Winge, as she and the gang referred to Walton on Wynham, where they all lived, well behind her, 
Ned had fallen asleep. The combination of excitement and anticipation had caught up with him. She turned off his story tape, and now that she was used to driving Winnie and had more or less mastered the vagaries of the gear lever, roadworks and stop-start traffic on the M25 had seen to that, she relaxed a little and thought how wonderfully free she felt chugging along on the inside lane of the M40, with High Wycombe soon to be ticked off on her mental route planner. She loved the idea of being able to stop at a moment's notice, park up wherever and feel instantly at home. It was this that had appealed, appealed to her when the idea had first occurred to her to take Ned travelling. A camper van would provide a home-from-home environment that would give them a comforting sense of self-sufficiency. And certainly right now, with Ned at her side, she felt as if she had everything she would ever want in the world. A car overtook her and the driver gave her a wide smile. She wondered why. But then she remembered what Guy and David had done to the van. Most of the streamers had blown away, but the balloons were still tied to the wing mirrors and door handles. She switched on the radio. A song came on that she recognised. It was Nancy Griffith singing Waiting for Love, and it tugged painfully at her heart. She'd first heard it when she was living in America, and it would be forever synonymous with that period in her life. She had only recently arrived there, single and carefree, looking forward to the challenges of a year-long secondment to Phoenix's headquarters in Wilmington. Determined to work hard and further her career, she had wanted to make the most of the opportunity. But it hadn't quite been the career move she had thought it would be. She had returned home before the end of her secondment with a bruised heart and a pregnancy to explain to her friends and family. Chapter 5 Gabriel was up earlier than usual. Last night, when he'd drawn the curtains, the track had fallen down. Dust and bits of plasterwork had showered over him, and something had got into his eye. He tried bathing it with an old eye bath he'd found in the medicine cupboard, but it hadn't helped. Now, after a sleepless night, his eye hurt like hell, and every time he blinked, it felt as if the lid was coated with sandpaper. Before going downstairs to make himself some breakfast, he went into the bathroom and had another rummage in the cabinet, hunting through the shelves of old pill bottles and pots of gunk Val had sworn by. Right at the back, on the top shelf, he found what he was looking for, an ancient eye patch. The elastic had perished, but he tied a knot in it, and it held firmly enough around his head. His hands were so annoyingly stiff and clumsy that it took him a few minutes to achieve this. He closed the cabinet door and took a long, hard look at himself in the dirty, black-spotted mirror. He was presented with an unshaven, grey-haired old man wearing a black eye patch. He smoothed down his thick, uncombed hair, which was sticking up all over his scalp. Then he turned his head and decided he looked no better sideways on. The long, straight nose Anastasia had described as proud and regal had turned into something that didn't fit on his face anymore. It looked too big, as though he'd borrowed it from an older brother in the hope he might grow into it. His cheeks had lost their firmness and sagged under the weight of so many lines. His mouth had withered into a rigid downward curve. Thick, drooping earlobes hung at either side of his face, and abundant, bristly tufts sprouted from them. Dear God, when had he become such an ugly brute? 
He walked the creaking length of the balustraded landing, avoiding the wrecks in the threadbare runner, and paused, as he did every morning, to look down on the garden. The sun was still low in the eastern sky, but a pale light shone on the sloping lawn, planted sporadically with daffodils. It stretched down to a thick bank of rhododendrons that were yet to burst into flower, and beyond was hollow-edge woods, a copse where generations of foxes and badgers had lived. Way off in the distance, the swell of sheep-grazed hills rose up to the morning sky. He rested his hands on the stone sill and thought that Byron had got it right when he had compared Derbyshire with Greece and Switzerland, saying it was just as noble. It had been love at first sight for Anastasia when she had seen Mermaid House. She had been an incurable romantic who acted on impulse and was inventively quirky, hence the children's bizarre names. But she'd had her work cut out in convincing him to buy the house. He was so conventional and analytical. It cost much more than they could afford and was miles from where Liberty Engineering's factory was situated. But eventually he'd given in to her. He could still see her bright eyes flashing with delight as she whirled him round the room when he agreed to put in an offer. It was only when they moved in that they appreciated the state of the place. It dated back to the mid-19th century and it was a wreck. Dry rot, wet rot and any rot you care to think of, Mermaid House had it in spades. Busy with work, he'd left Anastasia to deal with it. It was her baby after all. She threw herself into its restoration, determined to see the job thoroughly well done, and their bank balance just as thoroughly depleted. He'd never regretted it, though. To see her happy was enough. And then Casper and Damson had arrived. The upheaval in their lives was colossal, but Anastasia took the twins in her stride. She never complained of being tired, when night after night she sat in the nursery, in the rocking chair, with one or other of the blighters on her shoulder. She never minded how little they slept or how mischievous they were once they began to explore their surroundings, pulling themselves up onto their chubby legs and ransacking cupboards, drawers, shelves, constantly searching for something new to play with and break. They were an inseparable two-man destruction derby. Nothing was safe with them around. Gabrielle had wanted to employ a nanny to help Anastasia, but she wouldn't hear of it claiming that she loved the challenge of two such lively children. It was five years before they took the plunge again and tried for another child. Then Jonah was born, and Anastasia died. By craning his neck to the left and pressing his head against the window, which was cloudy with dirt, Gabriel could just see the spire of the church in Deaconsbridge. It was where both of his wives were buried. He tightened the belt of his dressing gown and continued along the landing passing closed doors to dusty rooms he hadn't been inside for months. He took the stairs slowly. His one-eyed view gave him a misleading impression of the floor. It wasn't as close as he thought it was. The staircase was yet another reminder of Anastasia. She used to refer to herself as Scarlet O'Hara as she swept down it in a graceful rush of laughter, her long hair tumbling around her shoulders. The kitchen didn't catch the morning sun, and even in the height of summer it was the coldest room in the house. Val had had an arger installed and had stoked it with coal morning, noon and night. It had been worse than a demanding baby, but as she shoveled in fuel at one end, it deposited ashes at the other. She had soon tired of that and had it converted to gas. 
Not long after her death, it too had given up the ghost. Something to do with a faulty thermostat that couldn't be replaced. Since then, Gabriel had bought himself a bog-standard electric cooker and one of those portable heaters on wheels with a large gas cylinder inside it. He switched it on now. He had to keep clicking the button until eventually a spark ignited the gas and a whoomph of flame shot across the blackened panels. It had been when he was doing this the other week that he'd burned his arm. he deliberately lied to Mr Singh about being careless with the kettle because he had thought that otherwise it might seem that he couldn't be trusted with a gas fire. Scalding oneself sounded less dangerous somehow. It was four days since he'd been into Deacon's Bridge and had his arm seen to. He hadn't been back to the surgery. He'd decided there was no point. He'd finished the short course of antibiotics several days earlier than he should have, working on the theory that the pills would take effect faster if he tripled the dosage on days one and two. What was more, he had changed the dressing himself, swapping the bandages and gauze for a clean handkerchief and securing it with a couple of safety pins. By rights, the doctor should be grateful for being let off the extra work. If more people were like Gabriel, the National Health Service wouldn't be in such a mess. But now he had this wretched eye to deal with. He would give it a day or so, and if there was no improvement, he would go into Deaconsbridge, make his Friday visit on Thursday, perhaps. He pressed the heel of his hand against the eye patch, resisting the urge to give it a damn good rub. It was so itchy and sore. To distract himself, he set about making a pot of tea for his breakfast. For such a large kitchen, there was little space to work in. Every surface was crowded with crockery and paperwork that lay in untidy piles awaiting his attention, as did all those things that needed mending, but which he never got round to. An angle-poised lamp that wouldn't stay in position, a battery charger he'd ordered from one of those junk catalogues and had dropped and broken, an iron that needed a new plug, a wobbly mug tree, a wooden bread bin that wouldn't open properly, and several shirts that were down to just a few buttons. But the mess was getting to him. There was something tidal in this stealthy manner in which it was creeping up on him. He would have to do something about it soon, but not today. Domesticity didn't suit him. He wasn't cut out for defrosting freezers or knowing how to get a crease-free wash out of the washing machine. Val had taken care of all that. It had been her domain and he had willingly left it to her. He wasn't ashamed to admit that he was old school when it came to defining the boundaries of a husband and wife. The system had worked perfectly until the world had gone mad and everyone had become obsessed with equality and role reversal. He switched on the wireless to listen to the Today programme, sweeping aside several days' worth of plates, cups, knives and forks, dirty pots and pans and a couple of empty pilchard tins, until at last he had cleared a space around the kettle and toaster. He made breakfast, he added a tot of twelve-year-old Glenvit to his tea, just a drop to kick-start his day. Time was when a new day for him had been like cracking an egg, short, sharp and he was off. Now he had to ease himself into it. He sat at the cluttered table and answered the wireless back, dishing out his objections and criticism with a fair hand. He disagreed on principle with everything the presenters or politicians said. He was still sitting at the table when he heard a knock at the door. He checked his watch as though that would tell him who was bothering him at such an unsociably early hour, but it was later than he had thought, almost ten o'clock. Even so, who could it be? Callers at the mermaid house were rarer than hen's teeth.
There was another knock, louder this time. Whoever it was seemed determined to summon him to the door. He pushed his feet into his slippers and shuffled off reluctantly to deal with whoever had come to bother him. He slid the bolts back, top and bottom, turned to the key and opened the door. What the hell do you want? Gabriel growled when he saw Dr Singh standing before him. And don't tell me you were just passing and thought you'd see if I was in. No, Mr Liberty, I wouldn't dream of lying to you. I'm here because you didn't keep your appointment with me. You didn't return to the surgery for me to check your arm. Very considerate of you, I'm sure, but A, I didn't make an appointment, and B, you've wasted your time in coming here because my arm is better. Perhaps you would be good enough to let me be the judge of that. Gabriel gave him a hard stare. Persistent, aren't you? Professional is how I like to view myself. Now then, are we to conduct surgery business on the doorstep or am I permitted to come in? Suit yourself. Gabriel showed him through to the kitchen and realised at once that this was a mistake. He could feel Dr Singh's dark eyes appraising the situation and the mess seemed a hundred times worse. The bottle of Glenvit on the table didn't quite give the right impression either, especially as he was still in his shabby old pyjamas. Damn, he should have taken him into the drawing room. In fact, any room but this. He pushed up the sleeve on his dressing gown, deciding that the sooner the infuriating man had examined his arm, the sooner he would be gone. There, he said, removing the makeshift bandage. Just as I told you, practically as good as new. Dr Singh gave the handkerchief a disapproving look, but nodded at the improvement in Gabriel's arm. You're right, it's healing nicely, but since I'm here I might just as well apply a proper dressing, and while I do that, you can tell me what you've done to your eye. I got something in it last night, Gabriel said airily. It's a bit sore, that's all. There's no need for you to have a gawp at that too. But Dr Singh insisted that he be allowed to do his job. And how did you come by this, he asked, when Gabriel had removed the patch and the eye began to water at the sudden brightness. A curtain track fell on top of me, if you must know. After pulling a small beamed torch on him, Dr Singh said, I don't like the look of it. You need to see a specialist. It's inflamed and you might have damaged the retina. Don't be absurd. I've just got dust in it, that's all. Can't you give me some drops or something? The something is a trip to the hospital, Mr Liberty. Do you really want to risk going blind in that eye? God, you foreigners make me sick. You're all the same. You come over here, you get yourselves an education at our expense and then start telling us what to do. Well, you know what you can do with your trip to the hospital, don't you? Dr Singh put away his torch and snapped shut his medical case. Mr Liberty, listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. Either you do as I say, or I shall inform social services that you are living in squalor and that you are incapable of looking after yourself. And, trust me, they will descend upon you faster than you can say Enoch Powell and you will rue the day you ever ignored my advice. So, old chap, what's it to be? Gabriel's jaw dropped. You wouldn't dare. Care to put me to the test? Couldn't we just try the eye drops first? No. Now, if you would be so good as to get dressed, I will drive you to the hospital. I was going there anyway. What, right now? 
No time like the present. I don't approve of blackmail, Gabriel said as he folded himself into the doctor's Honda hatchback. His knees were almost tucked under his chin, the top of his head jammed against the roof. Typical of the bloody Japanese to build cars for midgets, then inflict them on the rest of the world. It wasn't blackmail, said Dr Singh. It was a straightforward deal. We negotiated quite openly. There was nothing underhand about it. But tell me, why don't you have any help around your mausoleum of a house? Who said I didn't? Your standards must be low if you let a cleaner off so lightly. If it's any of your business, I got rid of the last woman after I caught her stealing from me. I didn't object to her helping herself to the odd bit of loose change lying about the place, but I drew the line at her sneaking out of the house with my best single malt whisky stuffed up her knickers. How long ago was that? Nearly a year. And no other help since then. What is this, twenty questions and then you'll file your report to social services? They judded over the cattle grid at the end of the track, where two stone pillars marked the entrance to Mermaid House, then joined the main road. Tell me about your family. Do they live nearby? Gabriel shifted the seatbelt that was cutting into his neck. Are you asking me why they don't act the part of doting children and pop in every other day to see how the old man's doing? I might be. A slight pause hung between them before Gabriel said, We have a perfectly balanced relationship. They can't stand me and I can't stand them. Dr Singh slowed down for a sheep that was nonchalantly crossing the road. Those are harsh words, he said. He turned to face Gabriel, looking at him gravely. Do you not feel the heavy weight of them? Do you not wish it could be otherwise? Seconds passed. The sheep's gone now, Gabriel muttered. You can drive on. listening. I hope you enjoyed the opening chapters of Precious Time by Erica James, meeting Clara and Ned and their friends and setting off on their adventure in Winnie the camper van. Tune in next time as we continue their story.